This is episode 65 of Tunnel Vision, our first ever open house. We will talk about HTML5 and translating what they did to what you can do on the internet. And we talk about how open can be good for people and for companies. And I actually go from just listening to talking. Yes! Our first ever guest. Join from us! From the chat room, Zeno! Zeno! Hello, hello. everybody. Welcome to episode number 65 of Tumble Vision. Today is Thursday, May 19th, 2011. Spring has shown up here in San Francisco. Tumble Vision is a weekly salon-style podcast about how to connect and create a world that puts people at the center of business, tech, and culture, where our human and our tech selves intersect. And each week, we explore various dimensions of tumbling with the smart folks creating this new world. If you want to learn more about tumbling, check out our website at tumblevision.tv to learn more. Suffice it to say that we believe that the answer to the question, how do you collaborate in a networked age, how do you run things when life is no longer a bunch of command and control hierarchies, you tumble. So uh, this week is our very special show. Uh, We're doing an open house with yours truly, Deb Schultz, and my fellow co-host, Kevin Marks. Hello there. Hi, Kev. And sadly, our third co-host, Heather had a plane schedule change, and so she's somewhere over the air, flying from Seattle towards um, Toronto with Air Canada, and won't be able to join us. But we think we have no Wi-Fi on Air Canada. No, no, yeah. But even if there was Wi-Fi in Air Canada, I'd be shocked, shocked if we could get a good connection. Although it would be damn cool, I have to say. So. Um, we have a couple of folks in our chat room live tonight over on Cover It Live, you know, just to let people know every week. Um, if you are lucky enough to catch our show live, we, um, we have an awesome pre and post show where we uh, sort of uh, chat along with guests, all the stuff that's not usually on the show. And so tonight we're kind of going to do an open house and just sort of chat the way Kevin and I usually do when we catch a cup of coffee during the week about what's going on in the world of tech and tumbling. So, Kev, what's uh, what's top of mind with you this week? Given that I missed last week, um, because I was busy going to three conferences at once, um, do we want to catch up on some of the Google I.O., Twitter yes. business, and all the other bits and pieces that happened last week, too? Was that because... Would- Love to catch. Remember up you saying I want to ask Kevin about this, and then I wasn't there because I, I did listen to the podcast and I felt yes. Really sad. Well, I was sad to have to miss Google I/O. I've missed it for the last couple of years, though, so that's no surprise. So why don't you tell us what? Tell the, our, our our fair listeners what Google I/O is and what was going on there. So Google I/O is Google's developer conference. The idea is that they they get all the people who are building stuff with Google on Google APIs together into um, Moscone West in, in um, San Francisco for a couple of days and let them actually talk to their engineers. Now, that's a big deal for Google because normally you can't get hold of anyone. You just have to type things into the search box, but they actually bring their engineers physically into a building so you can talk to them. So uh, it's about it, as close as Google gets to sort of the human side of tech and tumbling. Yes, yes. It's, it's, <laughs> it's the closest they get to high touch, yes. Yes. Um, 
Um, and it's it's somewhat modelled after Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference, which is coming up in a few weeks, uh, which they've been, they've done since um, well, the eighties. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that was the, that the model there was the same thing. Apple engineers are notoriously hidden away from from the general public and developers. Um, but for this sort of one week, you would get to actually physically meet them. And I, I remember back in in you know the early 90s, flying over um, to, to San Jose with, with, with my colleague Math um, and sharing a hotel room and going to this thing just so that we could get hold of these engineers who um, all our code depended on because we had to get them to fix the bugs to make our stuff work. So um, it's, it's that, that same sort of generation of, of coming to the mothership to learn what, what the, the new story is. But with Google, it's a bit different because mostly they tend to publish stuff so there aren't that many surprises. They have to work fairly hard to keep things secret to, to, to make a splash at this thing, whereas Apple right. is very easy to keep things secret. So there were, there were two big things this year and one like, oh, that was interesting silence. The, the big things were um, a, a rollout of new versions of Android with um, tablet focus. And in, in classic Google fashion, they gave every attendee a... 10.1 inch Android tablet to, to take away and experiment on and build apps on. So Damn, I have a shiny. I knew there was a reason that I was upset I missed that show. I have a shiny black thing that looks like an iPad but isn't um, now. It's smaller though, right? It's about the same size. It's a slightly different oh, shape. Okay. It's, it's, it's yeah. TV shaped. It, it's, sorry, it's widescreen TV shaped rather than ordinary TV shaped. Got it. Okay, I think. But but it's it's having handed it to people to show them things and they've then they've gone oh oh wait this isn't an iPad after about five minutes so it's 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 close enough um, mm-hmm. in in many respects so that's the, and that's going on sale um, week after next I think to the public so the point was to give them to the developers a couple of weeks in advance so they can get they can try their apps on it and go oh that looks bad and fix it so that when the general public get them they can they can do something about it because it's, it's it's you know it's 1280 by 800 so it's it's many more pixels than than any android device we've had before nice and and to point out i mean with my business hat on what i you know the concept of uh, sort of cultivating developer networks in general today has mm-hmm. definitely Cross the chasm from, uh, you know, just tech companies. In other words, sort of every company who wants to sort of be more tumuli, for want of a better word, and understand the network and understand that, that they are no longer command and control companies where the big voice comes down from on high, in a lot of ways has to understand that they are a platform, right? Whether they're a Google, a Facebook, a Twitter, or a Nike you know, and so th- this concept of community, community, and bringing your your biggest fans in is very similar to what tech companies do with developer with developers. That's, yeah, that's true. Yeah, so. um, yes, and th- that's you know, with with my shiny new job at Salesforce, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of that as well. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Salesforce is probably. I mean, it's still a software company, but definitely understands that you sort of have yes. to bring everyone along with you. And Apple's unique because they. They sort of bring you along, but they do it more in a kind of a rock, rock starry kind of way, like spheres of people who get access, kind of, you know. Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, that's like, true. I mean, yeah. I, 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 it's always been that way to some extent. It, it, it's um, there's a very big difference between the the open model and the closed model. So Google right. tends to work mostly on the open model, where the, the the software is out there, you can download it and build it yourself. You can debug it, and the open source worldview is. Um, whatever I'm building, I should be able to debug the layer below it and the layer below that until I get to the hardware. 
Um, mm-hmm. And Apple is the opposite. Apple is like there is this very hard barrier below which you do not go. That was interesting that um, for a while they had an open source operating system below the, the proprietary layer. I know, isn't that, that they kept funny? publishing. Um, and they've got a bit quiet about that now. I haven't heard about Darwin releases for a while, and certainly that isn't true of the um, the iOS stuff. But it is true of their browser. Their browser has um, the open source WebKit underneath the browsers that they run on both platforms as well. So they have they still have that mixed layer thing going on. Well, to me, it's this whole notion of like I don't know. Top of my mind these days has been sort of. Again, how do you, you know what's the nature of developing sort of connections and relationships with your constituents, for want of a better word, right? With Google, it's developers. It's trying to make themselves, I think, feel because they put everything out there, like you said, putting some human voice to, so people feel a little more connected to the company. With Apple, it's the only way you can get connected to them. With you know, with Twitter's probably somewhere in the middle of those two extremes, you know. Uh, there are companies who do, you know, I don't know, annual, um, I don't know, customer appreciation. eBay, eBay has been doing it with their sellers for years, right? Yes, yes. So, well, eBay started out as a very tumbly company. Very. It was. Um, they were trying to get people to buy and sell to each other, and they had all these tumblers whose job was to manage the conversation between the buyers and the sellers and the complaints and have all that stuff. And if you, if you read the history of eBay. The, the key employees they had were these people who were, who were, who were doing this exact tumuli conversational job to begin with. Um, yes, to make note, sure that- note, yeah, note to selves, we should have someone from back in the day at eBay who did that on the, on the show. Okay. Yeah, so Pierre's think- in Hawaii. We could try and track him down. But, yeah, we should try and yeah. find the people who did the tumuling job. Because they've lost a bit of that. More than a bit, I think. Yes? No? Maybe? Yeah. Um... I think they lost some of it with scale. The, the, the problem with right. this stuff is it's fairly hard to, to scale. Um, and I think they have less of the conversational basis they had to begin with uh, because they were trying to systematize that, those relationships, yes. Right, and that's what Tony says, you know, begs the question why they altered course, Tony, in our chat room. And, and I think this is the issue. Unless you are completely committed and understand explicitly as an organization that um, – that's part of your culture and what makes you your secret sauce, you, you might lose it without realizing you're losing it. I actually think it can scale. We, that's what we're trying to figure out here, right? How a lot of this stuff scales. And, and supposedly there was a big fortune article about it that I didn't know about. But we'll talk about eBay in a minute. Let's go back to Google. My fault for digressing. No, 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 not at all. Um, so but this was well, the, the talk I gave at Google was a, a, yes. a, an Ignite talk um, on the first night. So I got a conference pass for a five-minute talk, which sounds good, except that an Ignite talk is actually about six times as much work as a 30-minute talk. Do you think um, so? Yeah. You've got to compress it into that time. I, that's what I find. Um, most people do. I find it super easy to follow that. <laughs> <laughs> it's all Excellent. about picking the topic. Next time you're going to do one, talk to me. I love doing Ignite. Okay. That sounds fun. No, I, I, love, I love doing them too, but it's, it's the, the fact that I am going to have 20 slides that auto-advance and I've got to make sure my points fit in the space I've got means that I end up spending a fair bit of time practicing and rehearsing, whereas if half an hour, I will, I will build a, a prezi and, and be able to sort of stretch and shrink it depending on, on how people respond. You know, it's a, it's a different kind of talk. You, yes. you can, you're talking to the audience, but there is a clock ticking behind you that is driving you forward that you have to sort of surf over. So you can't start talking with the audience. You have to talk to the audience. Yeah, it's definitely yeah. an at thing for yes. sure. Yeah, yeah. 
And what um, was your talk about? So my talk about was the value was about the value of open. I, so I can even dig out my slides if you like. Um, but it was the 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 the, the, the point was that, and I, I told the story of, of you know I told a bunch of personal history about how I how I got to this place by previous jobs and things. But the the point is that um, if you have a closed system, if you have proprietary software, um, if you have a closed standard, it's very very fragile. It only takes one bad management decision to break the chain, and then everybody loses. Whereas you have an open system, um, it can be repaired. You can cope with all kinds of disaster because other people can pick up the pieces and, and connect them back together again. Um, it's sort so, of starfish and spidery in a lot of ways. Yes, yes. It can, yes, it can it repair is, it itself, right? But it's, it's – um, so I, I gave a bunch of different examples. Um, one example was Apple's – well, one example was the BBC archive. So the BBC had a video archive. My first job was at the BBC back in 88. Um, and, they had, and they had a huge um, video archive and a film archive, but they never bothered to make backup copies of the videos. They just racked them in shelves. Um, and about the time I joined at the late 80s, they realized that the oxide was falling off the tape and all these things were decaying, and they didn't have enough time to actually copy the whole thing before it fell to bits. Um, and they they lost, you know, and actually before that, they they had stupid recycling policies where they would record over old shows. So there's about 10 years of, of British broadcasting history that no longer exists because mm-hmm. it was recorded over, it was lost, the oxide fell off. Um, and um, one of the examples is Doctor Who. Doctor Who started in 1962, I think, um, and big chunks of that went missing because they, they fell off the tape. But they were able to recover some of it because people had made their own recordings with early right. video recorders or pointing Super 8 cameras at the TV. And, and one, of, one of my cousins um, had an editing job at the BBC whose job was to try and reconstruct these missing shows from all this stuff, all these bootleg copies from around the world. So the, wow. the actual, so the actual answer to archiving is to have lots of people have lots of copies. That's how you preserve culture. If you think, you think- about... Do you think we could go and tell the music business that? You think they'd believe? You know, you think they'd they'd realize that letting people copy music is actually self preservation? Well, this is you know, this is an old thing. This is this is the I know, this is the it's ridiculous. You know, this is, this is this is the basis of the religion. Is every place makes a copy of the thing, so you have a, your own copy. You know, this is this of is of course. This is this is you know, this is this is an old, an old answer. Um, so, and that means that you know any given. Copy can burn up and get lost, but the others will persist, and you can you can you know, know, know that they're, they're they're preserved. So that's. So sorry. here's my question for you. I didn't mean to interrupt, but why? I'm curious. Why did you choose that topic for ignite at Google? Um, I I chose it because it's something that was ticking over in my mind after South by because there were a bunch okay. of conversations I had there. Uh, the, the the Tim Wu conversations about um, standards and preservation, and some of the other conversations there were, were about this open versus closed thing. And the thing is, the classic, you know, so there's the, there's, there's the copies piece. The other thing is um, open source. So the value of open source is that you're putting the code out there so other people can help you fix bugs. That's the sort of right. baseline part. It's like it was, it was what I was talking about the difference between Apple and Google. Um, or the difference between building on the open source stack and building on the Apple or Microsoft stack is that if you're on the open source stack, you can keep debugging all the way down and you can say, oh, that database is doing something wrong. I can fix that 
And then I can send that fix to the guys who are maintaining that database and they can um, accept it or reject it or argue with me about it, but it can go back to everyone else. The, the knowledge is not lost. Um, whereas if you find a problem in a closed source database, you might, you've got to write your own patch around it. You've got to like write code that says, before you do the call, do this thing, and after the call, do this thing. Um, and you can send it to the closed source guys and you know, maybe, maybe they'll be pay attention, maybe they won't. Uh, but you're completely at their mercy, whereas with the other one, you can fix it yourself. And all right. the other pieces, if there's something wrong at a level you can't patch around, you've got to get hold of those guys and plead with them to make a new release just for you to fix that particular problem. Is this something that you think that um, Google needs to hear? I mean, I was just curious if there was a method to your madness in that. So, so, that was, so, so sorry, I'm, I'm sort of building up the, the song. It's pretty taking longer than the actual talk. This is good. Um, <laughs> just play it back um so the thing is that, that that's the classic you know argument for open source is that um you can fix bugs in it other people can fix bugs in it and together you can make the world better but the the other thing it fixes is institutional problems so the the, the structural problem you have as a programmer working for a company is if you leave the company for whatever reason you lose all the code that, that company had you can't work on it anymore and right. i had this happen to happen to me my example was for myself from the um, mid '90s, we built this um, 3D Atlas project, which was a um, an interactive CD-ROM that showed the world as a sphere, and let you zoom in and out. And oh, nice. this was very successful in like '94, '95. But around '96, '97, we could see that the internet was coming, so we said, "Oh, well, how do we do this in, in an internet way? Well, if we chop the world up into little squares and store those squares on a server and bring the ones down you want and then stick them back together again on the, on the computer and give it to the 3D graphics card so that you can see the world turning, we could do that. So we built this thing and put a demo of it um, and showed that off um, in 90... This was like early 97, I think. And we couldn't get the people in charge of our company to get that this was an improvement... Um, in fact, they decided they'd rather shut the company down and keep the money than try and move from a CD-ROM development to a web development. Hmm. Hang on, I've got a de-silent myself. Well, it wasn't so bad. It was a slight silenting. See, to me, what I'm, what I, you know, what, what I'm, the reason this is taking longer than your talk is because I keep interrupting you. By the way. No, no, because um, I don't have, I don't have a clock ticking behind me. So I can oh, I can, we can put a we can put a clock behind you, Kevin, if you really want one. Exactly. Come on, Andrew, put a clock in. Um, so, 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 have, so, so what happened there was um, we built this thing that was basically Google Earth in '97, um, right. but we couldn't get people to see that it was valuable. And when we left the company, we couldn't work on it anymore. The co- the idea and the code and everything was owned by that company that had been wound up, but it had been wound up by a bunch of shifty lawyers. So we knew we couldn't work on the same stuff. So that that thing was lost. Um, so that was my sort of, as the programmer, if I'd open sourced that first, I could have kept working on it. So as the programmer, once you start opening so- open sourcing stuff, it means that you can, you're insulated from the, um, the vicissitudes of employment and the problems of, 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 of doing that. But the of thing course, that- though, the argument against that, though, is the fact that if you open sourced all code, then, uh, you know, um, you know, everything wants to be free, right? Then would companies be able to find ways of making money on you know that's the opposite argument right well no but this is so the, it's the, great the, for the programmer it's not necessarily great for the company a, well that's that's company. what you would think but actually i know that, i agree with you i'm being too. a devil's advocate no, no, <laughs> the next phase was was talking to um colleagues of mine who were at bt who had previously been at a bank um right. and they had open sourced their trading system 
No way. Yeah. Which was uh, fairly ballsy. Um, very ballsy. And, they, and what they found was that after they'd done this, a couple of the engineers left and went in to work somewhere else, but they kept working on the code because they could. They'd moved to somewhere else to work on a different trading, work on a trading system, but they were able to keep using the code. So when they found problems with the code, they'd poke their, the people who used to work with them and they'd go, oh, yeah. I could fix that. Here you go. And give them fixes back because they were still using the same system. So, huh, interesting. So, so it actually works that way around. It, it, it doesn't just ensure the programmer against the company blowing up. It ensures the company against the programmer blowing up because the programmer can leave and do, go somewhere else, but they can still work on the code they, they, they worked on before. Um, so if you, you know, if you leave, if you're working on a WebKit at, at Google in Chrome, and you leave, you can still work on, on WebKit and build it into something else. Say, you know, say you went to Netflix, but they're using WebKit for their um, uh, browser display stuff. You can still send patches back to the, the same team who is, who's, who's building it. So it actually gives you this, it, it gives you this insulation against fragility because um, you're no longer dependent on any one institution or any one right. individual um, and the relationship between the two um, you were able to, to make this stuff survive. And, you know, the classic example of there, of course, is um, Firefox, where Netscape decided to open source their code. Um, and then several years later, some people picked up that code that was the Mozilla browser and put the Firefox browser out of it, which became this hugely successful entity and, and, and then got um, rolled back into the Mozilla organization. Um, even though Netscape is, is long gone, the, the sort of code survived and, and built that. So there is this um, this sort of continuity of, of care that can work. Um, it's that, yeah, but it's that cultural leap of faith that organizations have trouble making. That if we if we let this be sort of open and out, it's really hard for them to make that leap that it's going to make us. I'm purposely using the phrase less fragile by yes. sharing. Well, that's the the the, the 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 tension is between ownership and control, right? Because if you have ownership of something, you can you can destroy it. Um, whereas the what you're doing with this is you're saying anyone can have control of this. They have the ability to do things with it too, um, and you have to have a certain amount of confidence in yourself to give other people that level of uh, control over it too. And that's the, yeah, that's why it's hard for um, for the music industry. But uh, you know, I, I mentioned. Um, Trent Reznor and the um, the soundtrack for Social Network. Mm-hmm. Um, he released all the individual tracks he used to mix that on the internet as raw files, so anyone else can remix it to their heart's delight. Um, so if Which they want only to... makes it spread more and more viable and get out there more. Yeah, I mean, so in... there are, if you go and search for remixes of, of the of the Social Network music, there's loads of them because everyone's got all the bits they can they can do it from. They don't have to sit there with for ages either recreating them or trying to chop them out of the, the individual pieces that you normally have to do when you do a mashup. So he had the sort of um, foresight to see that you could do that with these. He's done it with previous albums as well. Yeah, well, you know, I remember you, you mentioned Apple. In 19... Could it be... It had to be the 90s. Maybe it was 97. No, 97, 95. Apple did this new music tour or new media music tour, they called it. And they had a couple of musicians and artists, I'll tell you who, go around and give these like small little talks. I mean, the fact that 
like in New York, I'll tell you the room had maybe a hundred people in it. And it was, um, Lady Keir, right. From, um, whatchamacallit from now I'm blanking on the name of the group. It was, um, Peter Gabriel, um, John Perry Barlow, of course. And one, who else was, and, um, uh, from the Eurythmics, um, Dave, Dave Stewart. So what's interesting is think of the people, two out of the two, you know, three out of the four of those people are like still very active in sort of digital and media. And the main conversation that was going on was all about sampling back then because it was 95, 97, right? So sampling is sampling bad, is sampling good. And obviously the people in that room thought it was, yeah, I mean, there was this whole thing. So we're still talking, it's, you know, over 10 years ago, it might've been like almost 20 years ago, actually, if I, it might've been earlier in the nineties and it was very much, you know, control versus, um, added value by sharing more and, 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 and having enough faith in your, I think Peter Gabriel had said it beautifully and he was the one who was talking a lot about it, you know, having enough faith in the art that you're putting out there that, and sort of confidence, like you said, that, that, um, by sharing it with others and letting other people morph it, they're they're gonna. It's not it's not even about making it better. It's just going to be adding to it, right? And it, it, that takes a very um, specific type of artist and very specific type of organization and very specific type of person, right? To do that. I mean, we end up talking here a lot about almost it's almost like digital therapy, right? <laughs> like that's, that's a word we keep using around open, closed control, right? Um, what were your examples? Did you did you do a little bit of the? Um, that's for the coders, but how an organization and its structure can. can... I didn't get to the. So the, the next piece I got to was was open open specs, um, okay. Because the open specs staff um, works at a level that's different from the code. The, the, the difficulty with code is that you've got one implementation, you're sharing, you're trying to move stuff mm-hmm. around. With the open spec, you're specifying at a level above that. So if you're using HTTP and HTML, you're using something that has multiple implementations, but we're trying to get them to work together. Um, and so the goal of the HTML5 project um, was explicitly, and, and I got a great quote from um, Ian Hickson on this, was that he, he suddenly realized that everything we were writing um, for the last few years was on the web in HTML, but what it was supposed to look like was dependent on the browsers we were running and... Um, you know, one of them was open source and several of the others weren't. And they, and they worked out how to make things look right by reverse engineering each other for the prop, what happened when the, the HTML wasn't correct. Um, and so the original goal, his goal for the HTML5 project was to write down how the browser should behave when the HTML is wrong, not when it's right, um, so that they can all do the same thing. Um, so uh, there's and there was there was some separate agenda as well from the developers which and the, the web design people who said we actually want some facilities to do extra things like audio audio input and geographic location and stuff. But a big chunk of the project was to document how you should behave if somebody forgets to close a tag and then does something else. What what would the right answer be? And the, the sort of historic model had been um, Microsoft would see what Netscape did and try and copy it. And then um, Fire, um, Firefox and Safari would see what Microsoft done and try and copy that. And he said, look, we should just agree on what this, what this behavior should be. So if you actually read the HTML5 spec, a huge chunk of it is this very, very dense 
description that's almost a, almost a programming language of what happens in this particular circumstance when this particular thing is, is encountered, whether or not you actually get it right or not, um, so that we can be consistent about it. Because the goal was to preserve all these documents we've created so that they can, in some time in the future, somebody could read this spec document and write code to interpret them and make sense of them again. So, so, that, so to translate that, if I get this correct, okay. to other things. So you had folks who were making specs um, for something and spent a lot of time, effort, and energy explaining sort of their logic, sort of the metadata and the conversation and the logic around why it was done this way versus that way and sort of the nature. Because they had an understanding that people were going to take this piece of art, quote-unquote, code spec, that they created and do something with it later. And in order for it to work... They had to understand the beginning parts of it, correct? Is that a good way to describe yes. it? Yes. Okay. I um, wanted to translate for the non-geeks, uh, you know, right. who may be uh-huh. listening, as to the the revelation <laughs> that that was what they were doing there. That is un, uh, uh, is unusual, correct? To spend that much energy because it, it's sort of what I'm taking away from that is it's it's someone who's creating either an organization. I think the hardest thing is around an organization, but they're creating an, a thing, whether it's a piece of art or some discrete entity with an understanding that it's going to be open up to other people using it. And with an understanding that you want them to know that if they go down this path, we've thought about that path already. And and we didn't go down that path because if you go down that path, this won't work. Or if you're going to go down that path, think this way. So it's really interesting. It's as if Henry Ford had sort of produced the specs of how to build the car as a kit. Yes. <laughs> as opposed to the finished product. Right. Does yes. That, does that make sense? Yes. I mean, so the, the, the thing is, the other thing that, that sort of illustrates this for me is if you go back and look at the protocols that we all run on now, whether it's um, – email or um, the web or any of the, the stuff that we live in every day and go and read the original specs for those, all the companies that were around then have disappeared. Um, many of the engineers are now working for other companies. You know, Vince Cerf is, is happily working at Google that didn't exist when he started running the IP staff. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, you know, but if you actually go back and read the, you know, think you read the, the specs, Oh, that's how email at the top is like, who are, what are these corporations? Who, you know, you recognize the names of the guys if you know the field, but the corporations are long gone. Um, so they've, they've managed to build something that transcends both the individual, you know, and some of the original authors have died too. You know, it transcends sure. the individual and the corporation and built this thing that is handed over you know, time after time. Um, and that is the, if you can, if you move something to that level of abstraction, um, such that many people can make versions of it, then you've then you've got you know something that that, that can can really last. And the, you know there are obviously you know um, this obviously applies to culture. This this obviously. is you know, with the culture, nature of culture. We can read works that were written by people who are long dead and make sense of them. We can we can connect the thread back all the way from. Um, as far back as we can make sense of writing through to the through, through to the present day and, and, and understand and interpret that um, we've we, you know, that was the sort of the invention of writing was this sudden preservation of culture beyond just reciting it to each other as oral history um, but the the fact that we can do the same thing with these these technological structures is an enormously powerful thing and one of the things that fights against that is the notion of patenting patenting it. 
and, and getting an exclusive monopoly. The exclusive monopoly um, dates back to the feudal system. The feudal system was based on land. There was one person who had the right to exploit that land, and anyone else who lived there lived under their sufferance. Um, well, it's based on a very sort of industrial age model. Um, I mean, I think... Pre, no, no, it's medieval. It's, it's, it's pre- pretty... Industrial. Yeah, it's pre-industrial. But, but we still live with that, you know. The, then the, then came the... Sort of we had this framing from that that brought us to the industrial age, which, I mean, ima- let's you and I, open house that it is, imagine if, you know, the industrial age had sort of broken that framework completely. Right. Right. And broken, really broken with that concept of ownership and said, okay, we're going to create the assembly line where, I don't know, every guy owns the widget. You know, I mean, (laughs) oh, wait a minute. That's Marxism. (laughs) But I'm trying, you know, it's sort of like we're still living with, isn't it it human nature to want to own something? I'm going to be controversial here, I guess. Yes, so, so, so Tony, Tony is, is, is saying medieval guilds were extremely secretive about technology. That's true. Medieval yes. guilds were an extension of the land ownership model to, to technology and also to licensing. It was like, you cannot be a weaver unless you're a member of the Guild of Weavers. Um, and they, can, they have a monopoly on weaving and they can, they can shut you down and send people around to beat you up without it. That was the, 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 the guild model, and it was mm-hmm. based on the land ownership model. And um, copyrights and patents, um, you know, it, before, before you had copyrights and patents, you had royal charters. So when, you, when, the, um, when they set up the British East India Company, they were given a monopoly over trade between um, Great Britain and India um, in, in perpetuity. That, that was the, that was what they you know, the assumption was you had to give somebody that monopoly in order for them to do anything, and that followed through into the, the copyright and patent laws. Now the crafty thing that they came up with with copyright and patent was time limited, which meant that it could actually go into the public domain after a while. Um, but then you know they fought back and kept extending those limits, so that you know copyright now lasts you know hundred hundred and ten years or more. Right. So so here we are in this age where the the okay, before I go into that. So I was I was sort of being kind of facetious that it's human nature to want to own things. I actually think it's human nature to want to be validated. And we've turned validation into you're validated by owning or getting recognition right. for something. Um if if people felt validated, they wouldn't feel the need to own. I mean, I don't know. That's sort of our consumer culture and status, right? I agree with Zeno in our chat room. But um, we, we have a couple of questions in here. Okay, so I was going to take us in a different channel. So Tony wants to know, so if he has ha- uh, half a million dollars to invest, <laughs> should he make a film or buy a rental house? <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's a good one. I have no idea. Is this investing, Tony? Do you want to invest? See, see, I immediately say, you know, with my business hat, consulting hat on, is what's your objective? Is your, is your goal to make more money or is your goal to – I mean, using the word invest to me makes it sound like you want to get return on investment. But if you want to spend, you know, depends what you want to do. Right, exactly. Zeno in our room says depends what you want to do. Um, yes. To me, well, I was thing- I was talking to Tara Hunt today, and she's yeah. um, she's renting Biosphere. out her flat on um, Airbnb mm-hmm. to help fund her startup. Right. She travels so much, um, mm-hmm. she could she can sublet her flat for big chunks of the year and use that to funnel money back into herself. So. 
Okay, Tony, it's a bullshit answer. You're right. So, so, but what's your point, Tony? So, <laughs> so the answer is it depends. It, it depends. I, you know, it does depend. I can't tell you prospectively what the value of property will be next year. You know, it goes up and down. Um, we everyone assumed it always went up, but guess what? It had a big burst of going down recently. So it depends no, where you're buying a rental property. No, but Tony makes a good point. He said the state, quote unquote, will protect my rental property. How? It, it won't protect it. It won't make sure that it generates value in perpetuity. They will protect well, it, you know, yeah. that they well, may decide to stop policing your neighborhood as much. They may yeah. cut down yeah. the fire department so that it burns down. You know, if you look at New York in the 70s, big chunks of it burned down because... Hey, they hey, hey, don't it. overstate that, okay? <laughs> I'm just kidding. It was bad. It wasn't that bad. Uh, burn, baby, burn, right? Yeah. No, it was bad. You're right. But but I think Tony's point is, and we're going to go back to what your argument was. I mean, it's very easy for us here in the echo chamber living um, off of day jobs as opposed to other things to make, you know, code. We were, we were sort of making the argument making code synonymous to art and, and sampling and making it all free and it gets better. But somewhere... To, to Tony's point, someone has to make money off of something somehow. So his point was, I'm not going to make money off a of film if I just put it out there and no one's going to buy it or distribute it. If I'm speaking wrong, Tony will chime in versus versus just putting it out there and making it free. So where's where's the business model in this sort of well, cycle? So, right. Of so there are different kinds of business. There are commodity businesses, there are fashion business. The, the problem with, with film and media business is that they have... Um, very unevenly distributed returns because they're a fashion business. You don't know whether things are going to take off or not. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're, you know, most people who make films and music and, and so on don't make much money out of it. Um, some people do very well. It, it's, a, you know, it, it's a parallel model. Um, so you know, the answer might be, I'm not being up to you, Tony. The, the answer might be don't make one film, invest in a lot of films or you know, come up with a way of doing that. that that's, that's the problem. You don't know any given film uh, is going to make money. Oh, you're saying we're talking about private property. I wish Tony would pick up the phone, maybe. And on Skype, Tony, chat about this. Come on, Tony, get on Skype. Chat with us. Tonight's the night, man. Well, what Tony makes me think about is, um, you know, sort of Kevin Kelly's latest What Technology Wants. And he has these great verbs. I mean, I think you were sitting next to me, Kevin, when he talked about them. The sort of um, the nature of creation today Um uh, you know, the verbs are are that you don't make money necessarily off of the thing. Adverbs too, yes, Patterson. They don't make money off of the actual thing, but you might make money off the embodiment of the thing. So you might make money off of going to see a filming of Tony's movie with Tony there describing what he did around it. Or, you know, or that's what artists do where they make money off of a live show as opposed to the recording. Or you might make money off of um, a validated copy of a film. Or, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, uh, we, if we really wanted to sort of blow up, which I think what we're trying to do, the construct of open and closed, and thinking of everything as a platform now, you know, where does a film fit into that? And so, I'm I'm, I'm trying to sort of bring us around. Oh, and I know that Tony has made plenty of films, and he's saying that he can't protect his investment; that people will copy it. And and well, how do you you know uh, tangentially? understanding the film business, you make money off the distribution of the films, right? 
Isn't that how you make money off of films? You sell the distribution well, rights, don't you? you? Yeah. You sell, well, you said, well, you either sell them, yeah. You either say, okay, I will distribute this myself and exhibit it to people, or I will send copies to people over the over the post. Or but if you want internet, big screen showings, you know, traditional models. Then you have to go and work with existing distributors, and you have to okay. give them large share of the money, yeah. Right. So Tony's saying he's right. So Tony, you're sort of agreeing with sort of the Kevin Kelly latest sort of argument that what technology wants is kind of different dynamics involved. So you make money off uh, out of your films elsewhere. Do you make money tangentially off of your films? You know, there's lots of ways that you probably could make money off tangentially off films. Um, Right. Exactly. Right. When you download torrents, you don't get it. But that's why you can make. The, sure. the point is, in a networked, platformed world, you, we need to come up with ways that leverage the unique qualities to make money that you could do. So that's the embodiment, maybe a live performance or making something, parts of it more scarce. Or, you know, Patterson was joking in our chat room about T-shirts. You know, maybe you do limited editions. Maybe you do. So it's not – it's – Oh, I'm not giving advice, Tony. I know you know this. I'm talking for our for our for our listeners. You know, who are going to listen later. The, the, it's really hard for us to knock our heads around different ways of, you know, it's it's the old argument of I don't make money off of blogging. I make money off of, right? Because right? of blogging. Because of blogging, right? Exactly. So, so, so um, yeah. So, you know, there are people. You know, Zoe Zoe Keating talked about this eloquently on the show a while right, back. Right on the show, right. Who, who who says okay? I put my stuff up online. Um, I ask people to pay for it. Um, a bunch of them will download it and and you know see it on YouTube and and not pay for it. And then a bunch of others will download and pay for it. And overall, she makes money from it. And it depends. Yeah, it depends a lot on the kind of business. It may be that the kind of films you make don't work that way. Um, don't work for for you as well as as, as Zoe's music works for her. That's true. It's, you know, it's the same thing with you know Cory Doctorow and Neil Gaiman and the people who have said yes, we'll see see big chunks of work. Paolo Colo, um, they've said we'll put out copies of our stuff for free because the biggest barrier is people knowing we exist. And once they know we exist and they like our stuff, they'll find ways to to give us money for for more versions of it. And yeah, that is hard. It's, 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 this is I'm not saying this is easy. Well, you know, another thing, if we wanted to take the long view, is um, maybe the last – I can't believe I'm talking about stuff I know nothing about. But maybe the last hundred years, you know, the last hundred years or so when it comes to media and art are the exceptions to the rule, right? Yes. Um, The broadcast mediums and the film industry and radio. I mean, it's really a hundred years of a business in that way. Before that, you had, you know, patrons and – very few people making money off of their very few people making money off of their art or being able to make a living right off of off of art um, you know and and and, and Andrew and I, hopefully we don't need any more medicis i think the difference is and i feel like this is an argument that many other podcasts and others have discussed when it comes to that stuff is you know the beauty of today with the network and the internet is that we don't need Medici's or 10 people to be patrons. We can have everybody be a patron, a la Kickstarter. Um, so in an odd way, this reminds me of one of the things that I was going to talk about um, tonight was there's another, yet another book out on the dystopian point side of the equation about how technology sucks instead of technology being great. And I'm blanking on the name because I didn't send it to Andrew for our show notes. But yet again, how we are um, – 
it has innovation in the title, and it's basically about how we've had less innovation in the last 100 years than we've had in the last 20 years because of the Internet than we've had beforehand. Um, point being that innovate, in, the, in the author's definition, innovation equals you know, new discoveries that make, that make economic growth. And you're know, going through a whole bunch of, yes, even with Google and, and, and Facebook and on the Internet, it hasn't added that many jobs to the you know, economic GDP and et cetera, et cetera, as opposed to how much the light bulb gave to humanity in terms of jobs and how much the industrial era changed things. And I thought it was really interesting for us, you know, related to what you're talking about, Kevin, is – and we should probably bring Umer back to talk about some of these economics is we almost need to sort of reconstruct. We're living through a time where we're reconstructing what's economic value, right? Right. I mean, if we're going to go by the old system that economic value and innovation means how many jobs Google added to the economy, that might not be the right measuring stick, you know? it's, It's a very different world where you're living in an open platform. Yes, it's Tyler Cowen's book, The Great Stagnation, that we are not innovating as much as we used to. Um, and I question, I think we have lots and lots of innovations. I don't think we've figured out yet how to, we have more innovations than we can keep up with. But we haven't figured, we're not going to create this grand scale of new jobs in the same way that you used to. That's, that's, it's just a different displacement of value. I mean, I don't know. Do, what do you think, Kev? I mean, it, I feel like we were. Sorry, I'm going to distract because I was buying that book you just told me to buy. Um, <laughs> the Great Stagnation or a different one? Well, the Great Stagnation. Cool. There we go. I just yeah, 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 yeah. Good. I'm glad you clipped it. It's, a, it, it, it's you know, it's, it's, it's a great argument and I literally did the cliff notes of it. But he's very sort of negative on, on the fact that we haven't created that much innovation as a result of internet, internet um internet culture and internet technology and, you know, all the new jobs, quote unquote, created. And I feel like we should have our producer, Andrew Hazlitt, jump in on this because I bet he has points of view on this. And I bet Tony does too. So, I mean, that's sort of what we're living through. If everything's open, where do you create value? And and is value a new and different type of value? Well, um, Andrew here. Um, Hey, it's Andrew. (laughs) Um, you know, actually, yeah, Tyler Cowen, I don't think he would be as much of a curmudgeon as your summary would 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 make you think. Oh, okay. It, it, he sounded that, curmudgeonly on NPR, by the way. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, he's... Okay. he's it, it, sounds, it sounds a bit like um, 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 John Hagel. Yeah, I think he'd be more at that end of the spectrum. And I, and I think that oh, actually he and, and Umer agree on more than you'd real, than, than any of us would, would uh, initially think. Um, so explain but, to our, our audience, because obviously the NPR story pitted him against MIT Media Lab. <laughs> really? Wow. It was, oh. I'll, I'll, I'll look for it. Well, you guys chat. I'll look for it. Okay. That's cool. Yeah, I, um, so, you know, you, you know, you know Tyler's uh, blog. And, and I know Tyler's blog. Yeah. Revolution. I, I read, it, read it every day, yeah. Um, and, you know, in answer to, to, you know, in partial answer to Tony's thing, I just clicked on the link and pressed buy and it is now on my tablet, and that took, like, seconds. So, yeah, the, the fact that I could do that and that was easier is a, is a big win. This is a big win that Apple made with iTunes and Amazon's been doing with books. And, yeah, we need the, the equivalent thing for the movies that Tony sells as well, it's such that if, it, if 
clicking on it and buying it is as easy as or easier than, than downloading the torrent version. And I, I don't know if you I don't know if you have that. No, but no, but the point that you just made is another one of Kevin's good points that you're Kelly that yes. that you're willing to pay for it if you want it now. To the point where the example that I love that he gave was National Geographic. You can go up and get like old issues from the 1920s. And literally, if you go into their archives, if you want it right away, like at a full speed download, you pay, you pay $20. I don't remember. If you're willing to wait and have it downloaded to you on the 9600 baud modem, you pay $5. I mean, even to that extent. You know, so, so Kevin, you're the type of person who's like, you mentioned it. You want it. I want it right now. I'm willing to pay for it. If you didn't want it right now, you might be able to search and find and it, it was on the internet for free. Like, you know. Right, but you might be able to find it on the internet for free. You know what I'm saying? Like, okay, but even sure. if it was twenty dollars, you know, like whatever your threshold is, you know, the point is that the frictionless ease of having it at the moment is very right. That's the difference. That's another new dynamic in the economics. But I want to learn if Andrew, if you know more about Tyler's stuff, do you want to explain a little more how I yeah, well, these badly are described him? Oh, no, I, I, I actually haven't read this book yet, but um, I did read his, um, his previous book, which is about the age of the infovore and, uh, and how right. a lot of the, what the web and the internet has brought us is, you know, enormous riches in quality of life and information and social connectedness, etc. But what uh, I think what this new book is saying is that uh, those are those have very real value, but not a lot of current economic value for uh, the large number of people who are being quickly left behind um, in the American economy right now. Right. That, and, yeah. yeah. That that I think is. You know the 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 physical problems of uh, uh, that have driven solving the physical problems that you know, ha- solving physical problems has been a big source of um, innovation and economic activity. Whether it's from you know switching from uh, you know bumpy roads to trains to uh, superhighways, you know there've been big increases in efficiency there. But you know we're we're his argument, at least, is that we're at this sort of point of diminishing returns for those things. And now, um, you know, creative culture is more accessible legally or not. And, um, and we have all of these uh, educational tools at our disposal, but it's not – doesn't mean jobs. It doesn't mean um, huge economic growth. You know. And that's the point. Like, yeah. we, it, you know, where's the value kind of today? I guess yeah, um, they distribute it in different ways, you know. Yeah, know. And it doesn't. It's great for for iPod sales. It's not great for, um, you know, paying off credit card debt, um, maybe from buying yes. iPods. Yeah. <laughs> good point. Very good point. I don't know. Wow, we spent a long time on this topic tonight. Like almost the whole show. Jeez. That's amazing. Was there anything else? I'm just sort of realizing right now that they're like, we like, wow, we went off in open house tangent land tonight, which is but kind of fun. It's, it's, see, I told you it's, it's easier to have an hour long conversation than a five minute night. Well, it is. We weren't very directed. We, we talked a little bit about Google I.O. Did we want to talk about um, Facebook or any other techie tummily news? Um, do you want to, yeah. Do you, did you want to talk about the, the Facebook Google smear thing? 
Oh, yeah. Is there any truth to the Facebook Google smear? Let's wait till Heather comes back for that one. That's kind of a fun – she'll have fun with that. I don't know how tomally it is. I'm just trying to think if there was anything. It was tomally for me because it was an example of PR people completely failing at tumbling journalists. Okay. Um, Okay. Okay. Under that premise, Kevin, you may now talk about (laughs) – so for those who aren't aware – there was a Google Facebook PR smear that sort of happened this past week. So, yes, the week before. So, so what happened was... Right, week um, before. Uh, Facebook hired Burson Marstella, which is a PR firm. A very um, big no, firm. Very big PR firm and not one they normally use. Um, they, they're known for doing crisis and adversarial PR. Um, right. And they said, what we want you to do is to get people to write about how spooky and disturbing... Um, <laughs> Google's um, social searches. Yeah. Isn't that creepy? How that you search and you can find your friends and where do they get that from? You know, and it's like, well, do you read this? Do you read the FAQ? Because you know, I wrote the FAQ anyway. Um, so they and what happened was, um, Burson Marcella delegated this to a couple of guys who had recently been journalists and now working for the PR company, and they went out to try and pitch this to independent bloggers and um, USA Today, a bunch of other reporters to say. Here's this story. We can give you the data. We'll go write the story under your own name. Or we'll write it for you. We'll put your name on it if you want. Um, and basically creeped out the journalists. Um, and, my, and my take on it is, is twofold. One is these two guys are ex-journalists who were trying to be PR people. And therefore, they were playing to their worst caricature of what a, how a PR person behaves. Yes. A sensible PR person would not cold call random people who had written hostile articles about Google and Facebook and said, here's a hostile article for you. They would call somebody they already knew and said, there's this thing. I don't know if you can make something of it, but here it is. And, and right. give them agency. Um, they wouldn't you know, find, oh, this guy's written hostile articles about Google. Let's go and give him, write the article for him and help him promote it to the Washington Huffington Post. Whatever. So they were, they were behaving like their worst caricature of what a PR person is because they just crossed the line and they felt that was what you do when you cross the line. Um, the other thing was that it was emotionally um, wrong because emotionally people now think of Facebook as a public space because mm-hmm. everyone they know is on it. You know, everyone they're nervous about seeing stuff is already there and seeing stuff. Um, whereas they think about Google search as a private conversation between them and the computer and nobody else gets to see what they say. Right. Um, And so saying Google search is creepy because it's telling you stuff about your friends is like, that's not creepy, that's cool. Um, Whereas, you know, from from Facebook's point of view, it's like Facebook is is accidentally showing your mother those photographs when you were drunk. Um, That's that's the bit that people have, have actually experienced and felt wrong, whereas they don't feel that thing from Google, precisely because Google is, is, seems mechanical and automated. So there was... Oh, interesting. I hadn't thought about it from that perspective. So, so they, were, they, were, they, were had, they were a double bind. One, they were doing it really, really badly. They were doing really bad PR um, because PR is all about um, telling a story, tumbling quietly in the background. You know, good, good PR is, you know... Is, exactly is never is 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 wait is seen but not heard, heard it's, but not seen. <laughs> anyway, it's, um, it just also, is. You know, you yeah. don't say, oh, "I can't tell you who my client is," but there's this thing. Right. You know, yeah. that's just shifty. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was just. It was. It was so heavy-handed. 
and it and it, it was just I, I was shocked shocked it was so stupid facebook makes some pretty stupid mistakes I, and i don't even understand why they bothered do you, could you put your head in there well, it was a bit, you know, clearly there's, there's like some, well, I think why was that they were about to launch the Microsoft Bing integration and they wanted to right. sort of pour some oil on the water first. Um, Again, why? So I think, you know, the, the, the thing they were pitching was how is Google get this information from Facebook without permission? It's like, well, because you publish it on the web and they index the web, you know, did you actually talk to engineering before you made this thing up? So yeah. that, the, the other part is I know the people in engineering who've, who've done this, who've done this stuff and made this public and they understand exactly what they're doing when they put it in the web so Google can find it. Um, so there was clearly a, you know, an internal fail as well. So it was, it was one of those like, how did you back yourself into that corner? That's pretty painful. Oh, yeah, Myers, <laughs> Myers made an interesting point in the chat room. He goes, ooh, are we heading to a space where creepy and cool unify? <laughs> so Tara said that today. <laughs> Tara was joking about it. She said, cool. yeah. if, you, if you turn the Chinese character for creepy upside down, it says cool, she said. Right, yeah, exactly. But, but, she, but she, she was saying there's, it depends, a lot of this depends on how you look at it. And she was also saying there's a sort of a, a male-female split. Talking about, um, uh, Christine Heron was talking about four square check-ins. And she right. said... All the guys checking when they get to the bar and all the women checking when they leave the bar. Um, right. Right. Because they want to yes. say they've been there, but they don't want people to find them. Exactly. Um, and and she, so, you know, she, so just to remind so people. So that's, that's cool to the guys is creepy to the women. Well, because we're, go, we're using the tools for very different reasons, probably. Our objectives are a little different. Right? One is using it to find friends. The other is using it as more of a, I was there, but I, I, I'm happy being with my own friends. Uh, the conference that Kevin's referring to, which we'll talk a little bit more about next week, because I have a feeling there will be more topics out of it, is a uh, internet privacy um, conference that's going on right now in the Valley. And I attended their dinner last night where I tumbled in a conversation about a lot of this. And it was very interesting because around the issues of privacy and data, it was about 10 different tables. And most of the people there that they didn't use the expression were really talking about less about technology and more about a, a, a renewed need for a new social contract that we sort of don't have an understanding of what happens, which is exactly what you just pointed out with Facebook and Google. We don't really have an understanding of where our data is going and what we're going to do with it and, you know, it, where it's going to end up. Um, forget a legal understanding. We don't sort of have a social understanding of what's going to happen. So uh, the issues around all of this stuff are more human than legal, <laughs> you know, because, you know, you end up talking about all these issues of privacy and data and, you know, and check-ins and things like that. Always we jump to this technology and legal point very quickly. And you can't make legal arguments until you sort of understand the social contract yes. that come that is there first so we have lots more to talk about about this stuff and there's a whole bunch of stuff that that we're going to talk about next week regarding there's a bunch of stuff on the web that we're totally related but because we have an open house and we don't have a guest we are bringing in our very first very first on air vocal guest who has been with us since i believe episode number one and that is, and this is very exciting for all of us, and hopefully in post, Andrew will add in a drum roll right now. <laughs> and I think that's the giggle of Xenophrenia. Hello, hello. Hi, hello, Zeno. Zeno. It's great hello. to hear your voice. This is really kind of strange. 
<laughs> oh, because you can hear us and we can hear you instantly and there isn't a 15-second delay? Well, that and the fact that I'm actually talking to you guys when I'm normally only just listening to you. I know. It's kind of cool. Well, same here. It's so nice to hear your voice. <laughs> what part of the country are you in? Wisconsin. Cool. Very cool. And so was there anything that we sort of rattled on about tonight that you wanted to share your two cents about? Mm, I wasn't really thinking off the top of my head about anything. Um, well, Andrew okay. had told me, because I had brought up the um, the TED Talk that's been floating around, and he said that you were having that the guy that did it on next week. Oh, which TED the, Talk? Fil- uh, the Filter Bubbles. Yes, we're going to have Ellie yes. Paris. I always pronounce his last name wrong. Andrew, how do, how do we pronounce his last name? Paris. Uh, Pariser. Pariser? I always want so. an extra. Yes. So for those listening, the um, activist, I don't know, would he call himself an activist and new author of The Filter Bubble um, is going to be on. And so I have not seen his TED Talk, but I, I know of it. So um, what made I you think? I haven't seen TED Talk either. Clearly to watch that before next week, but... I've, I've had heard a bunch of discussion about it um, from from other people. So, mm-hmm. yeah, they were talking about it on Twig. Yes. And what, and what did you love about it? What was interesting? Well, it, what I found interesting was the idea of the subtle shaping that can go on with it. That's what troubled me about it. I understand that people, because what they were talking about on Twig was Jeff Jarvis was saying that he he gets more serendipity on the web no matter what, which is fine. Mm -hmm. But there's this idea that they can kind of subtly shift what you're finding. That kind of troubled me. Right. And they're not always aware that they're doing it as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's obvious with regular media, but it's not obvious on this. Who's the they? Um, Like Google and Facebook, wasn't it? Yes, yes. I loved how, how, how Kevin was like, they. Kevin, you don't usually <laughs> say they. They, they. the man. It was the man argument. That's exactly what he was yeah. saying. He yeah. was saying, yeah. there is this nefarious thing that is change- shaping your world. And, you know, we have the counterweight to that is that we listen to each other as well. So, yes, if you assume that the the Google search engine would always give the right answer or the daily newspaper was given. Jeff's rebuttal was, well, when there was one TV news channel and one newspaper in town, that yeah. was way more shaping than Google has ever been. Yeah, I, and, I, and I agree with Jeff on that. But but the point is... But, but there are issues. There's, you know, Andrew has... Yeah. has um, Andrew... Andrew, Tony Comstock, I'm getting mixed up. Tony Comstock's issue of um, Google taking his name out of searches because it was discovering porn is, is, is an example of that. Yes, exactly. Uh, mm-hmm. The Arena Slutsky thing where... Um, yes. Google also complete um, deleted her name because it started with smut, um, and therefore, if you if you typed Irina SL, it would stop showing you results. So there is this shaping that's the, 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 that goes on there, and it does and it does frame the discourse to fit the worldview of that of that company. That 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 is true, and they're trying very hard to be you know neutral and respond to customers, um, but. Clearly, the, you know, as the algorithm is made by people and it reflects the values that they encode into it. And they, they have right. been starting to admit this a bit more. I've noticed that Matt Katz has talked about this a bit more now. But it, it Matt is, Katz is who? Matt Katz is um, oh, Matt. Google's um, yes. head of web spam. And it, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm just blogs. trying to make Love sure. That. We should get him on too. He'd be good. 
Yeah, so you can get Matt on. Yes, okay. I mean we know who Matt is, but I, I think, yeah, you know, I agree. I agree with the point that um, the difference between sort of back in the day when you only had Walter Cronkite is mm-hmm. whether you knew or not, you knew that you only had Walter Cronkite. You sort of kind of knew, and and our chat room is very smartly, as they always are, saying that you know people think an algorithm is neutral. I think. I love the fact that Ellie's bringing up the point that people hold on. It's not making Google evil or any other search engine or evil. It's just sort no. of bringing the top that don't presume that this is everything, right? And all neutral and, you know. Mm-hmm. And there's this future possibility of someone using it in a nefarious way. You know me, I'm paranoid about these sort of things. <laughs> That's okay. But the thing in the talk that kind of bothered me the most was at the beginning of it, he's talking about how he likes to talk to people who have other views. And he has conservative and liberal friends on Facebook. Well, because he tends more towards liberal, he would click on more of their links and stuff. Well, suddenly he started noticing some of his conservative friends were falling out of his feed because he didn't click on their stuff, which is kind of troubling. Very troubling. Um, I'll give you an example of that um, that's a much more personal, less politic example that happened to me sort of today. Like, so for all our social connectedness, and I'm a pretty upper right-hand quadrant user of all these tools, I just found out that a pretty good friend of mine who we don't live in the same city anymore lost her mother three days ago. Now, in the old days, she would have known that no one would know. So she would have sent an email or there would have been a phone chain. In the current world, she put it up on Facebook, right, mm-hmm. and on Twitter. But because, A, I was offline for a while, and, B, we hadn't in the recent – because I am a high user, right, mm-hmm. in the recent, you know, five-day period, I did not interact with her on either of those tools. So, therefore, her stuff, based on the algorithms, did not come up higher in either my activity stream or nor did I see her on Twitter, right? Mm-hmm. Um, she didn't have, so I missed something the compu- that is an incredibly impactful, important thing that without mm-hmm. all this technology, I right. probably would have been top of mind on. So she probably got more, and, and the same thing happened to me. It was my birthday over the weekend. All these people I hadn't heard of in a very long time, you know, still the the killer app of Facebook is that birthday thing. Mm-hmm. So, So it's that... Strength of weak ties, I love, but is it also the weakness of strong ties <laughs> in an ironic yeah. way? You know, and, and yes. having just lived through that was really, really upsetting to me. Um, so, it, and because so the they algorithm don't, decided that we're, we're not close anymore, right? And because they don't, they think that they've put it out there, they don't realize that you may not have seen it and then right. they get upset with you. And right. Well, that's, like, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, that's a whole even deeper mm-hmm. issue. But but without getting into sort of that, it was more – it's more the – she used to be at the top of my stream all the time because we interacted on Facebook more, right? But mm-hmm. to, just like Ellie, you know, his conservative friends are dropping off because he's not clicking on their stuff. So we're, we are assuming um, – so it is shaping our behavior in ways that we don't realize. And, and so I'm very much looking forward yes. to talking to him about a lot of this because. Well, the, the other way- effect is, is that um, you assume you're talking to the people who are vocal 
So this is the, the yes. Twitter thing, is you're talking to people you follow, but also on Facebook, you're talking to the people who actually post stuff. In your yeah. head, that is, that is who's listening. But actually, right. there are a bunch of people who don't post much who are also following you or on Facebook. Uh, you, you said, oh, yeah, I'll sign up my cousins and my right. school friends and whatever. And then um, suddenly, um, their comments pop up on some photograph you thought you just shared with your family. It's like, what? How did that happen? So you sort of you have this jarring sense of who who is who am I sharing this with? And the problem is is that it's easier to share something with the entire world than to decide who to share it with. And so we tend to do that by default. Totally, yeah. I, I mean, it, uh, you know, it, uh, it's it's a really important issue, um, and that's sort of this social contract stuff, right? You know mm-hmm. how it. And I don't think it's paranoid, as you said, to be worried about how this stuff is shaping our behavior. I think that's smart. Yeah. And a lot of people aren't really aware of it. They just assume that they have these people in their thing. They're going to hear from them. And they don't realize that things change because of the amount of interaction you have. There's a lot of people who don't understand how this technology works. Most people, I would argue. Yeah. yeah. And they don't, you know, I try to, like my sister, I try to explain this stuff to her and, and sometimes she just gets frustrated and just like, well, I'm never going online again. <laughs> and sometimes and yes. sometimes she starts doing stuff and I'm like, uh, you want to hold on a moment here. <laughs> this right. is not necessarily a good idea. So it's really difficult to try to explain this stuff to people. Yeah, especially because it all keeps shifting as well. And because also it really depends on your experience of the tool as well. I mean, um, uh, some of us make an assumption here in the land of Silicon Valley that you're, you know, that, that most people online have thousands and thousands and thousands of people in their network, whatever their network is. When in point, the, um, the average user on Facebook, I think, has 150 or 180 connections. You know, so, mm-hmm. so, so. To be fair, it, maybe it works better in, if if that's your, you know, if that's your network. Maybe my friend wouldn't have fallen off as much, you know, because I have a high percentage of users. But still, that we, we, you know, to realize that is an important point. You know, I, I, I think it's a good one, and I think we will be. It's a topic we will be talking about more for sure. So, so the, the birthday thing. Oh, sorry. Um, right. The Facebook birthday thing. Um, I was chatting to some friends about this um, the other night, um, and they said, "Oh yeah, um, when I when I see a birthday reminder from somebody I don't know, I delete them." Um, so they said, "So you you delete people on their birthday?" Said, yeah. It's like that's, that's a sign for me that if I can't even wish them happy birthday, I shouldn't be following them. Good point. Good point. Well, like, it, that, well, well you could wait a day. That's not so funny. Yeah, I know that's so <laughs> you get lost in the noise. <laughs> you could wait a day. That's funny. Um, well, it also depends on. Happy again, birthday. Goodbye. Right. <laughs> it depends on the. It's been nice knowing you. Don't let the door hit you on your way out. But the point um, was, it's it's a rolling thing, right? If you're following, you know, hundred people, then the birthday will come up every few days, and you can go. Mm, don't know that person anymore. Goodbye. Also, that also has to do with that person's choice of wanting maybe only stronger ties in their network. I am perfectly fine with having lots of weak ties and people I might only connect with twice a year, but I don't want it to impact my, the strength of my strong ties. 
you know, so I don't know. Bricolage and all that jazz. Well, you know, we have been chatting for a long time on our official show. I am so excited. And when we, by the way, when we do finally get some money and create those Tummel Vision t-shirts, Zeno, you get the first one. Woohoo! <laughs> You're being our first guest. Yay! You can do the laundry in it. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> And so our lovely producer, who also shared his voice for the first time on our live show, Andrew Hazlitt, is giving me the wrap it up sign, Deb, wrap it up. Um, But we will continue, as we usually do, um, post-show, and that's where the real fun happens. That's when Tony Comstack and Kevin Marks arm wrestle each other in the chat room (laughs) over the meaning of open and close. And so with that, I am going to... um, wrap this one up and Zeno if you will hold on for a minute we might ask mm-hmm. you to do formal wrap up with us this week and intro intro up intro intro up intro up wrap up it's we sort of do it at the end of the show but it'll be at the beginning so i just wanted to say thanks everyone who um stuck with us tonight for our very serendipitous round and curvy open house uh, number 65 and uh, we have lots of additional show notes and news that we didn't talk about this week which we'll we'll get into in uh, following open house because some of the items we were going to talk about are evergreen and um, as usual um, if you want to learn more about tumblers Tumbling, Tumble Vision, etc., etc. Check out our website at tumblevision.tv, spelled T U M M E L V I S I O N dot TV. Please make sure to also check out our archived episodes with all our amazing guests and find out how to listen and participate in our show, which is live every Thursday at 6 p.m. Pacific and 9 p.m. Eastern. As our lovely guest, Zeno, pointed out, our next week's guest is Ellie Pariser of Move On and The Filter Bubble, a new book. And we will be talking about what the Internet hides from you. Tumble Vision is produced in Baltimore, Maryland by the lovely Andrew Hazlett of TheNewModern.net. And with that, Tumble Vision, episode 65, Tumble Out.